BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss powerful thinking tools and strategies you can use to break through tough problems and give yourself confidence and clarity when you're dealing with uncertain situations. We share the breakthrough strategy that was used to invent astrophysics, explore how you can make tough life and career choices, and show you how you can use quick experiments to test, learn, and get results rapidly. We share all this and much more with our guest this episode, David Epstein. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. On our previous episode, we discussed what creates great performance at work. We uncovered how you can do better work in fewer hours, how you can get rid of wasted meetings with hacks that you can use to make your meetings radically more productive, to finally remove the things that are distracting you, and learn the recipes you need to say no to your boss the right way so that you can focus on the biggest things that will create the most value in your work. We shared all of that and many more lessons with our previous guest, Dr. Morton Hansen. If you want to do better work in less time, listen to our previous interview. Now for our interview with David. Please note, this episode contains profanity. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, David Epstein. 
David is the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, and of the New York Times bestseller, The Sports Gene. He has a master's degree in environmental science and journalism and has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and as a senior writer for Sports Illustrated, writing some of their most high-profile investigative stories. David, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. As I was telling you in the pre-show, I'm a huge fan of Range, and I really enjoyed the book. I've recommended it to many different people, and it just touches on such an important theme and idea, this notion that in today's world, we have all this information at our fingertips, and the real skill, the real challenge is in a world of, of deep specialization of tons and tons of infinite information, the real skill that becomes more and more valuable is how do we step back and start to combine things? And how do we really teach the skill of actually thinking? Yeah. And unfortunately, we often kind of don't, right? And I think that's that's really unfortunate because people, you know, some of the work that I marshaled in the book, I wanted to show how big an advantage there is to connecting ideas and learning how to think broadly, particularly as people specialize more, right? So it's like the more and more specialized people are pushed to get, the greater the advantages are for people who can kind of look across domains and integrate knowledge. And this is showing up in pretty interesting ways in research. Like some of the research in technological innovation that I looked at showed that for a lot of the 20th century, the people making the biggest impacts were those who drilled really deeply down into one area of technology is classified by the U.S. Patent Office. But then starting in about the mid-1980s, where we have the explosion of information technology and suddenly huge amounts of information are quickly available and widely disseminated, suddenly you start seeing the biggest and most valuable impacts coming from people who had actually spread their work across a large number of different technological domains, often bringing something from one area where it was kind of normal and putting it into another area where it was rare and more valuable. And that, that trend is only accelerated, but it seems like our notion of how to be successful really hasn't kind of kept pace with that. Yeah, it's a really interesting problem because in today's world, there's almost a scream or a cry or a drive to specialize as early as you possibly can to really dig in and focus on one particular thing. And yet that skill set of broad thinking is is so powerful. Yeah. And I think you mentioned the drive to specialize as, as sort of early as and narrowly as possible, right? Or what I what I call in range the cult of the head start, basically. And I think, you know, it, it might be useful to sort of share the jumping off point that I start the book with, which comes from the sports world, right? These, this, the introduction I call Roger versus Tiger, basically. And I started with Tiger Woods because I think Tiger Woods is probably the most powerful modern development story. You know, it's been at the core of at least a half dozen best-selling books. And, and even if you don't really know the details of the Tiger story, you've probably kind of absorbed the gist, right? His father gave him a putter when he was seven months old. Ten months, he starts imitating a swing. He's physically precocious. Two years old, you can go on YouTube and see him on national television demonstrating a swing. Three years old, he's saying, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicholas. You know, you fast forward to age 21, he's the best golfer in the world. And that has been, I think, probably the most written about and most disseminated story of development of expertise. So against that, kind of on the other side of the teeter-totter, I, I put the story of Roger Federer, who uh, played some basketball, some some tennis, some swimming when he was a kid. His mother was a tennis coach but declined to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. He went on to play uh, handball, volleyball, skateboarding, rugby, a number of the other sports. His, when his coaches tried to bump him up a level to be – play against older boys. He declined because he just wanted to talk about pro wrestling after practice. He did wrestling after that. And he just kept trying one sport after another. 
and was not focused on being great early. In fact, when he got good enough to warrant an interview with a local newspaper, the reporter asked him what he'd buy if he ever became a pro with his first hypothetical paycheck. And he said a Mercedes and his mother, who like did not want him focused on sports to that degree, was appalled and asked the reporter if she could listen to the interview recording. And the reporter obliged, and it turned out Roger had actually said mere CDs in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. So she was okay with that. And kind of the question I had was, which one of these is the norm? Because we, we've heard of both of these people as adults, obviously, but we only hear about one of their development. And, and what I found was that the research shows that, in fact, in basically every sport, almost every sport, athletes that go on to become elite start with what scientists call sampling period. They play a wide variety of sports. They learn broad general skills that they later integrate. They learn about their interests. They learn about their abilities and they systematically delay specializing until later than their peers. And so I thought that was kind of a good symbolic jumping off point for what I then found in a, in a lot of other domains. It's so fascinating. One of my favorite examples from from an early part of the book was this notion of chess. And it ties back to what you said a second ago that in the early part or for most of human history, really, and in the early part of the 20th century, the skill of, of winning at chess was all about this deep specialization of the memorization of tactics. But then you talked about this new form of chess that's emerged called free chess or freestyle chess. Can you explain what that is and how the skill set of being successful at that game is completely different and really relates to the theme that we we've just explored. Yeah. So to give a little background on that, chess, in fact, is an activity, traditional chess is an activity where early specialization is really important. I, I definitely don't claim in the book that everything benefits from this breadth or this range. It's a lot of things do. But chess, the grandmaster's advantage in chess is based on recognition of recurring patterns, essentially. And so if you haven't started studying patterns by age 12, your chances of reaching international master status, which is one down from grandmaster, drops from about one in four to about one in 55. So you got to be studying those patterns early and because that, again, that is the advantage. But but computers are much better at recognizing patterns than humans are. And so, you know, once we had computers with sufficient power, they blew humans away, most notably in 1997 when Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov, the best chess player in the world. But Kasparov recognized in the way the computer played something called Moravec's paradox, which is this idea that humans and computers or machines often have opposite strengths and weaknesses. So Kasparov said, you know what, I wonder what would happen if we teamed up humans and computers. And so he helped launch what's called freestyle chess tournaments. And freestyle chess, you know, a computer can play on its own, a human can play on his or her own, but also humans can play with other humans and with other computers, whatever you want. You can, you can play however you want. And to his surprise, the winner of the first big tournament was neither a grandmaster nor a supercomputer, nor a grandmaster with a supercomputer, but a pair of amateur chess players with three normal laptops. Right? So somehow this combination, it, it turned out that freestyle chess required a totally different skill set than traditional chess. Basically, the computers, you could outsource all of the years of pattern study to the computer. And then the job became thinking about much higher level strategy instead of sort of these tactical patterns, thinking about how do you manage the little battles to try to win the war and how do you uh, process streaming information from multiple computers and direct them to search what, whatever you think is valuable. And so Kasparov's conclusion was that these amateurs were actually better at coaching the computers than the grandmasters who were sort of used to a very certain type of play were. So those, those amateurs, they beat the best 
they were playing the highest level of chess ever seen. And this is sort of a theme in what is most automatable. So the fact that chess Chess is amenable to early specialization because it's based on recurring patterns, and that is exactly what makes it relatively easy to automate. And so we're kind of in this work era where the things that are most based on repetitive actions and repetitive thinking and repetitive solutions are the quickest to be automated, and the uniquely human skills are these sort of much more big picture, broader sets of skills that require integrating knowledge. And and so I thought that was a good symbol of kind of where the work world is going. And we've seen that in other industries as well, where the years of specialized repetitive experience are, you know, can be outsourced in a flash and it makes the entire challenge completely different. I just thought that was a really succinct and great analogy of what's happened in today's world and the skills that are required to be successful in the 21st century. And this isn't just for sort of you know, I, chess used to be viewed as kind of the the epitome of human cognition, right? But that's not really the case because obviously it can be passed to computers pretty quickly. But we've seen this in, in all sorts of other places too. When I was going back and looking at – so in Newsweek's cover about of the Kasparov Deep Blue back when Newsweek was, you know, one of the largest magazines in the world – the cover was the brain's last stand, right? This was viewed as this sort of showdown. Would humans still have anything to add? And when I was going back and looking at coverage of technological innovation and disruption, you'd see this constantly. Like there was this big TV series about ATMs when they first debuted and and tons of articles that were all about, oh, there's you know a few hundred thousand bank tellers in the United States and they're all gonna go out of business overnight because now we have ATMs. And in fact, what happened instead is there's there were more ATMs in the US, there was a rise in bank tellers. And that happened because, first of all, the ATMs made each bank branch cheaper to operate, and that meant banks could open more branches. So fewer tellers per branch, but more branches overall. But it completely changed the job from one of repetitive cash transactions to one where that's all handled by the ATM, and the bank teller is essentially a a customer service representative and a a marketing professional, you know, or a financial advisor. Like they turned into these individuals with a much broader and often including soft skills set instead of someone who specialized in these repetitive transactions. So those kind of freestyle chess transitions, they really abound all over the place. And in domains that actually have had more AI and more computers, job growth has been greater, but it's changed the job to one that requires these broader sets of more integrative skills. And if you can do that, then you know, you're well positioned for the future. I love that phrase, broader sets of more integrative skills. But one of the things I, I really enjoyed about range is that a question I've pondered for years is how to apply the the method or the lessons of deliberate practice to skills or fields like business where the feedback loops are often long or murky or or even counterintuitive and you had a great discussion in the book that that really brought a new level of clarity for me about understanding this, which was around this distinction between what you call wicked domains and what you call kind domains. I'd love for you to explain that. Yeah, so those are terms coined by the psychologist Robin Hogarth. And to explain kind domains, again, we can go back to something we've, we've talked about already. Chess is, is a good one and golf is a really good one. So a kind domain or a kind learning environment is one in which you know, all the necessary information is clear. The next steps and goals for what you should be aiming at are, are very clear. Nothing's hidden. 
every time you do something, you get automatic feedback that is both immediate and accurate. So again, you can think of something like golf where you hit the ball and you see exactly what happens. The, the feedback's immediate and accurate. And you essentially try to do the same thing over and over with as little deviation as possible. Some of the people that study it actually kind of classify golf as almost like a, an industrial task. In chess, it's a huge store of previous data. Information is clear. You're seeing recurring patterns and, and you see what happens right away, basically. And there's, you know, and it can't kind of be inaccurate. But again, so those domains, kind learning environments or kind domains are amenable to specialization because the challenge doesn't change. Work next year will look like work last year. The problem is we've extrapolated those to other areas of work like the business world and Golf and chess happen to be really poor models of most things that people want to learn because most of the things we we want and need to learn now in, in this much more dynamic work world are what Hogarth would call wicked learning environments where you aren't just given all the information that you need and some will remain hidden. Human behavior is involved. The next steps and the goals you're aiming at aren't just clearly laid out for you. When you do something, you may not get feedback at all or you may get feedback that's delayed or you may get feedback that's it's completely inaccurate. Um, and that turns out to be kind of the norm for most of the things that most of us want to do. And in fact, in these wicked learning environments, doing the same thing over and over can often have really perverse, unintended consequences. One of the examples that Hogarth liked to use was of this. He used a lot of examples from medicine. And one of the examples was this doctor in New York City who got famous because he would predict over and over correctly that patients would develop typhoid. And he could do that just from feeling around their tongues or, or palpating their tongues with his hands. And over and over, he, he got it right before they showed a single symptom. And so he became rich and famous for doing this over and over. But years later, one of his colleagues observed that using only his hands, he had been a more productive carrier of typhoid than even typhoid Mary. And it turned out that he was actually spreading the typhoid by touching patients' tongues with his hands. And the feedback he was getting was telling him that he was he was right over and over again. So he did it more and more and more and more. And, you know, most of us might not be in that wicked of a learning environment where the, the feedback actually enforces the exact wrong lesson. But most of us are not in a situation like chess or golf. Most of us are playing what Hogarth would call Martian tennis, where we know things are happening. We see people playing. We have, you know, we can try to interpret what's going on, but nobody just hands us the rules and they can change at any moment. So work next year might not look like work last year. And my guess is for most people listening, the domain they're in, they can't count on work next year looking like work last year, you know, until the end of their career. One of the great tools or strategies that you talked about to be more effective at playing Martian tennis or navigating these wicked learning environments were, as you call them, Fermi problems. Tell me a little bit more about how we can use that tool and other tools to become more effective at operating and learning and improving in these wicked environments. Yeah, so the Fermi problems named after Enrico Fermi, the great physicist who who led the creation of the first sustainable fission reaction. And they're called Fermi problems because Fermi found it really useful. First, he would sort of screen some of the people he'd work with, but he also himself found it really useful to make large-scale estimates really quickly so that he could tell if he was kind of going on the right track. So a Fermi, a Fermi problem is one in which you aren't given a lot of information, but you have to kind of use things that you're already familiar with to try to break down a problem and get a sense of where you should even be start to think essentially. So one of the well-known ones that I actually got on a 
college chemistry exam at the time. I'd never heard of it, but is to ask how many piano tuners there are in New York City. So I literally had this question on a on a college chemistry exam. And the thing is, it sounds difficult, right? And kind of obscure. And at first, most people's instinct is just to say like, gosh, I don't know, you know, a thousand, 10,000. But the point, what you really want to do is break the question down into all these tiny chunks that you can actually deal with, with things that you know. So you say like, okay, how many people live in New York City? You know, it's about 9 million. And obviously everyone doesn't own a piano. And it's probably only families that own pianos. And how large is a typical family? I don't know, four or five people. So how many families do I think they're in New York City? I guess that would mean, I'm trying to do this in my head, like one to two million. How many families do you think own pianos? I don't know, between one and five, between one and 10. And so that would leave you with like something like 50 to 150,000 pianos. And then you you ask, how often do they need to be tuned? And how many pianos can a one tuner tune in a day? And and so you go through these estimates. And the thing is, none of them has to be particularly accurate for you actually to come out with a pretty good estimate at the end. So I think based on what I was saying, it would be, you know, something in the hundreds of the number of piano tuners who can serve all the pianos in New York City. And Fermi found this incredibly useful for when he was starting out with a problem of trying to think through you know, where should he start? What direction should he head? Is something that he's trying to do feasible or, or not feasible? And he used that a lot in development of, you know, the first controlled nuclear explosions. And when you're dealing with these problems, these more wicked problems where you don't, you can't just go look it up or you don't have previous experience where you know the answer or someone can just tell you the perfect answer. Using these sort of broad estimation skills can really sort of help you kind of define the the Martian tennis playing field so you sort of know where to start. And it's also incredibly valuable for, like, once you start getting used to Fermi estimation, I'd refer anyone who's interested, go online. There's a there's a college course called Calling Bullshit that uh, the University of Washington that, that put up its syllabus online, and one of the classes is about using Fermi estimation to understand really quickly that a lot of certain stats you're being fed on cable news are are maybe technically accurate, but are being completely misportrayed, essentially. And so it turns out to be a really useful skill for the wicked world, just taking these problems instead of reacting with intuition, trying to break them down into constituent parts and, and get a sense of what you're dealing with, since no one can really tell you. I hope that makes some sense. Nobody's asked me about that before, actually, interestingly, in, in all the interviews I've done about this book. That's fascinating to me, because to me, that was maybe one of, if not the most important concepts and chapters in the entire book. And there's some amazing themes and ideas in there. But just this notion that it's something that I think the the whole project of, of this podcast is all about the same quest to teach people these broadly applicable reasoning tools and, and the way to actually think about the world and how to interpret in today's world. There's so much misinformation and data out and and quote unquote data out there that, that can be interpreted a bunch of different ways. It's such an important problem to think about how do we shape our minds and think more effectively in these wicked environments. It's so, I, I think it's such a great tool. I think, and you're totally right. And it's such a broad tool, right? That's, so when I was at Sports Illustrated or ProPublica when I was doing investigative work and when I'm evaluating scientific papers, like I've kind of practiced Fermi estimation uh, when I can. So, you know, if, if I get curious about something I see in a newspaper and suddenly I want to know, I don't know, guess like how many, I mean, one I was doing the other day was, <laughs> I was talking to somebody, I was trying to guess how many 
NCAA track and field athletes there are in the United States. So it doesn't matter what I was trying to guess. But when I do that, instead of trying to Google right away, I'll try to do Fermi estimation. And I've noticed that once you try to do it, it starts coming naturally to you. So instead of just using your intuition, you start doing it whenever you see numbers. And it's been so useful to me when, say, if I'm working on an investigative piece, when someone is giving me stats that are are misleading. And may, maybe I only have the one interview to be talking to someone. And so I have to kind of make some estimates in my head while it's going. And you can pretty quickly figure out if they're really misleading you or if a scientific paper is kind of maybe not portraying its its data very well, or if a business is pitching its data in a way that doesn't isn't really representative of what's going on. I've found it incredibly useful, but it took some sort of practice where instead of Googling something right away that I'm interested in, I try to actually you know, go through that process of breaking it down into these things that I do know and see if I can get the right order of magnitude. It's so funny. And I, I don't want to keep harping on this topic, but it is really important. And we have a couple great previous interviews that talk about how to decode scientific studies and see through some of these things. So we'll make sure to include those and the information around the Calling Bullshit course in the show notes for listeners to be able to dig into that even more. Another topic that I thought was almost parallel to this, and, and there's many recurrent related themes in the in the book, obviously, but the story of Kepler and the, the tool set of thinking by analogy to me really mirrored Fermi thinking in many ways, and I thought was a great skill set to solve complicated and confusing challenges in today's world in these wicked learning environments. Yeah. And I think so the story, just just in a nutshell, the story of Kepler, and I I, I studied astronomy in college, and so I'm I'm prone to use <laughs> stories of astronomers. But essentially, Kepler kind of invented astrophysics in the sense that when he started his astronomical investigations in the 16th century, astronomers thought that the heavens were like all heavenly bodies were riding on these invisible crystalline spheres and you just couldn't see them, but everything did the same thing for eternity and that there were these souls inside of the planets that caused them to move how they did and, and all these sorts of things. And he started to see things that didn't comport with that. Like he saw a comet go across the sky in Europe and said, wait, why haven't the, like really close to the earth and said, okay, why have, why didn't that break the crystalline spheres? And he kept having questions about things that, that didn't fit. Like he saw a supernova, which is, you know, the, the light from the death of an exploding star, basically, and said, wait, but nothing is supposed to change in the heavens. So something something seems wrong. And he pretty soon realized that, you know, for 2000 years before him, essentially, these were the beliefs about the universe. And all of a sudden he realized that some of them are probably wrong, but he didn't have anything to go on because he was so far outside of traditional knowledge that he didn't really have much to work with. So he turned to analogies saying, okay, so he noticed that the like planets had different motion based on their relation to the sun. So he said, gosh, is there something about the sun that is causing the planets to move in these patterns? Of course it, it is. It's the sun's gravity, but there wasn't even a concept of gravity as a force at the time. There wasn't a concept of any forces that worked throughout the universe at the time. So he would say things like, all right, well, maybe it's not the sun because the sun can't be touching all of the planets, right? Like the planets were supposed to have their own souls that move them around. But then he'd start to think and say like, well, is it possible to affect something without touching it? He just read about magnetism and he said magnets affect things without touching them. So maybe it is possible. And he said, maybe in fact, it's the sun's light because there's some force that would have to show up at the planet to cause it to move, but that you couldn't detect anywhere 
between the source and the planet. And light's like that, right? You shine it from a source and you can't detect it until it it hits something. And so maybe that was proof of concept. And basically, I don't want to draw the story out too much, but he just started going from one analogy to another of trying to decide what was possible in the universe, essentially. And by the end, he essentially figured out that there were laws according to which the planets moved. He even laid down kind of a precursor to to gravity and and figured out that the moons affect the tides and things like that, which even Galileo made fun of him for thinking, but he was correct. And so he was the first person who sort of took the heavens out of the realm of kind of mythology and showed that they too work based on physical laws. And because he was doing this novel problem solving, right, this wicked problem solving where he couldn't just look at past patterns, he had to try to draw analogies from other areas of the world. And that it turns out that analogies are basically one of the most important tools for creative problem solving. So one of the researchers I write about in range, a guy named Kevin Dunbar, spent a huge amount of time in scientific labs figuring out why some do and some don't make breakthroughs. And essentially what predicted breakthroughs when a breakthroughs usually came when a lab something happened that wasn't expected and at first they would think it was wrong or a mistake or some equipment was broken or something like that and if it kept showing up they would then say all right there's something real here what do we do with it and what predicted whether a lab would make a breakthrough or not was essentially the number and breadth of analogies that they could draw on to try to start thinking about how to attack a problem so in labs that had only experts in sort of one field, like one of the labs he studied was all E. coli experts, they didn't have a ton of range to bring different analogies to the problem. In others, there'd be like a med student and a physicist and a chemist and, you know, an undergrad and, and all these sorts of things. And those labs were much more likely to have breakthroughs because they would start tossing out all these analogies for thinking and something would resonate with the structure of the problem they were facing. And that would give them kind of an approach to take. And this, this shows up all over the place. So the, the problem is I think our structures work against people developing these, think, these thinking skills. So when I went to spend time with a woman named Deidre Gentner, who's probably at Northwestern University, probably the world's expert in using analogies for problem solving, she came up with this test that tests like how well people can solve problems outside of their, their sort of you know, area of specialization, basically, problems they haven't seen before essentially. And she tested it on Northwestern students. And what she found was plenty of them were pretty good at, were quite good at solving problems that they had already seen in whatever their major was. But when it got out of something they'd seen, the students who did the best were these ones who didn't have a major. They were in this program called the Integrated Science Program, where they just had lots of little minors that taught them how different disciplines approach problems. And so they did the best. And then when I went around and talked to her colleagues, they would say, yeah, we don't really like that pro program because those kids are falling behind because they don't have a real major. So here you have the world's expert in this kind of very important problem solving saying, here are the kids we're doing the best with. And her own colleagues saying, yeah, but they're getting behind, right? And so that to me was sort of one of the kind of perverse outcomes of our drive towards specialization where we can look at the people who are actually doing the best problem solving and say, yeah, but they're behind when it's, well, that seems crazy to me. But anyway. We don't normally, when people think in analogies, we think in the first one that comes to mind. You know, it's like Kahneman's availability heuristic, whatever dramatic analogy comes to mind. And actually, the science is pretty clear that if you want to be a more creative problem solver, what you should do is come up with a, an enormous number of analogies, like come up with as many as you can from as many different domains as you can that seem to have a structural relation to the problem you're working on. And it has an enormous impact on people's ability to successfully, creatively solve problems. 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. That was such a great chapter. And, and another example that I thought was, was really interesting was the, I think it was called Dunkner's or Dunker's radiation problem. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to, I can give Dunker's radiation problem, but I feel like I've already like rambled too much on analogies. So no, no, no. It's such a great tool set and such an important thinking tool that I think it's worth sharing, sharing Dunker's radiation problem really quickly so that people can get a sense of how you can, because you can have the realization in real time as you explore that to see how simple they can be. Yeah. So Dunker's radiation problem is, okay, everyone try to solve it. Ready? It's basically you're a doctor and you have a patient who has a deadly tumor in uh, his stomach. And there's a kind of a ray, a medical ray, like, you know, radiation that can be pointed at the tumor and can destroy the tumor. The problem is at low intensity, 
the ray will arrive at the tumor and not destroy it. But at high enough intensity to destroy the tumor, the ray will also destroy all the healthy tissue that it passes through on the way to the tumor. So how can you save the patient by destroying the tumor without damaging any healthy tissue in the process? So that's the question. And and if you were in actual the actual study, you'd get more time to think about it. But while you're thinking about that, here's another story. So many years ago, a general wanted to capture a, a country back from a brutal dictator. And to do that, he had to capture a fortress in the center of the country. And he had plenty of troops to be able to do that. And there were roads that led to the fortress radiating out like spokes on a wheel from that fortress. The problem was they were narrow and they were strewn with mines. And so if he walked all, if the general walked all his troops down one of those roads, they'd a lot of them would be killed by the mines and they might not be able to take the fortress when they got there. So the general said, you know what, I'm going to split up my troops into smaller groups so they can walk down the road without setting off the mines. And then we'll spread them around the various roads and synchronize our watches and we'll all arrive at the fortress at the same time. And so that's what they did. And they, they overtook the fortress. So a problem in some famous problem solving studies, almost nobody gets the first radiation problem initially. But then about a third of people get the radiation problem after they've also been told that story that I just told and they have some time to think about it. And now here comes a final story after which most people eventually solve the first problem. So in this final story, there was once a small town, there was a fire in a small town in a barn and it was in danger of spreading to houses nearby, but it was near a lake. So neighbors came out and started getting buckets and throwing water on the fire while it was still smaller, but they couldn't get it to go out. Eventually, the fire chief showed up and said, okay, everybody stop what you're doing, go fill your buckets with water, and then come back here. And he arranged them in a circle around the fire and said, one, two, three, we'll all throw at once. And they did that and dampened the fire, and soon it was out, and the fire chief got a raise. So after people get that story, actually, the majority of people solve the initial story. So again, you're not getting as much time as a person would in an actual study, but the answer is that you can arrange the the medical raise in a circle, essentially, around with the center being the patient's tumor. And you can have each individual ray pass through healthy tissue at low intensity, but they all converge at the tumor in high enough intensity to destroy the tumor. So the point of this study was to test how much giving analogies structurally similar to structurally similar problems improve people's problem solving. And it turned out to be that it took the groups, you know, it took people from almost no one solving the initial problem to almost to most people solving the initial problem. And this is kind of a, a theme in studies of creative problem solving, where if people can come up with relevant analogies, they are vastly more likely to come up with a, a successful solution to a problem. Such a great example and, and such an important skill set. I want to switch gears and and discuss another theme or idea from the from the book that I thought was so important which is this notion of switchers being winners and how changing directions sometimes which we're doing now in the conversation can be really beneficial. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of evidence that when people switch and particularly we're talking about jobs or what they study that they are doing so in response to information about what economists call match quality which is the, a term for the degree of fit between an individual's abilities and their interests and the work that they do. And that turns out to be incredibly important for their sense of fulfillment, for their performance. And, and this importance of sort of doing some quitting 
in search of match quality shows up in a whole bunch of different areas of research from higher ed. So one of the studies I enjoyed was uh, an economist who saw a natural experiment in the higher ed systems of England and Scotland. And in England, in the period he studied, students had to specialize in their mid-teen years to decide what program of study to uh, to under to apply to. And in Scotland, they could continue sampling different programs of study all the way through the end of university. And his question was, who wins the trade-off, the early or late specializers? You know, the people who have to pick early or those who can kind of try different things and do some quitting or or what scientists like call sampling since it's, it's less derogatory. And it turns out that the early specializers do jump out to an income lead because they have more domain-specific skills. But the later specializers get to try multiple different things. And in doing that, they get a better sense of what opportunities are out there and also of their own abilities and interests. And so when they do pick, when they do settle on something, they have faster growth rates. And so by six years out of university, they fly past the early specializers in income. And then the early specializers end up quitting their career tracks in much higher numbers, basically because they were made to choose so early and not allowed to quit that they chose poorly more often. And I should say when they did quit anyway, even though they had huge disincentive from doing so, they then had faster growth rates. So quitting is, there's a lot of evidence that it is in response to this information that there's actually something better for you uh, to do. So the the so-called Freakonomics economist, Steve Levitt, who I'm sure a lot of people know, he actually ran this really interesting experiment where people agreed to make major life choices based on the results of a coin flip. And the most common question that people asked in this study was, should they change their job? And so the people who got the flip, they flipped the coin and the coin indicated they should change their job and they did change their job. Those people ended up better off than those who simply followed the coin flip, you know, who were already at the point of questioning whether they should make a change. So that is, you know, something they came in with. But if they got the coin flip that said, don't change your job, those people ended up worse off. Because again, it's our moves are usually made in response to match quality information. And so I think some of the popular concepts we think about, like like grit, which is one that's really popular, we should not take those to mean that strategic quitting is a bad thing. In fact, Angela Duckworth, the researcher most associated with grit, the same week my book came out, I, I subscribed to her newsletter. The title of her newsletter was Summer is for Sampling. And she said, you know, young people during the summer should try a bunch of different things and they don't, you don't want to be gritty and not quit before you know what you should be doing. And she actually said that it took her a decade of moving through various things to figure out, you know, where she should focus and put her energy. And so we actually need to try stuff and be allowed to quit stuff if we want to find match quality. And match quality has an incredible impact on your happiness and your performance and your persistence. So as one of the researchers told me, when you get fit, it looks like grit. Meaning if you get people in a situation with high match quality, they will display the characteristics of grit, like work ethic and persistence, even if they didn't before. And so I I think that's a pretty important way to think about some of these concepts. Such a great concept from the book and and something that in today's world, so many young people feel this the need to specialize rapidly and to not give up, and yet the the opposite strategy can really be beneficial. Even the notion that you, that you talked about later on was this idea of experimenting and exploring a myriad of possible selves that you might have in the future. Tell me a little bit more about that and the importance of 
running small experiments and tests as opposed to laying out grand plans for your future. Yeah, that's interesting. That came from the this section of the book focused on the work of a woman named Herminia Ibarra, who essentially studies how people find good career fits for themselves and, and how they transition between careers. And her work really resonated with me because like I was living in a tent in the Arctic, you know, training to be a scientist when I decided for sure to become a writer. And I still and I now have no idea what I'm doing next. So she gave one of my favorite quotes in the book, which is we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means by that is that there's this huge industry of personality quizzes and career gurus who who sort of want to deliver simple advice that's like, take this quiz and then just introspect into yourself and march confidently forward. You know what you should do. But what Herminia meant when she said we learn who we are in practice, not in theory, is that the actual research shows that we are not so good at introspecting into ourselves and understanding our abilities and interests and our opportunities without actually going out and trying stuff. So we learn who we are in practice by doing stuff. As she says, act and then think. You want to do things and then reflect on it and kind of go forward triangulating a fit for yourself that way. And so the way that she found, she and and a pair of Harvard researchers whose work I write about called the Dark Horse Project. This is again about, this is about people who find fulfilling work. They both found that the way that people who do find fulfilling work proceed is via small personal experiments. So we may think of career changing or finding careers as taking these these big leaps or setting out a 10 or 20 year goal or something like that. But that's kind of the opposite of the norm. So in this this project at Harvard, the Dark Horse Project, the, the reason it's called the Dark Horse Project is because when the subject came in for informational interviews early on, they would all say like, well, don't tell people to do what I did because, you know. I started in this one thing and then I switched or I dropped out of law school, whatever, and it took me a while to figure out what I should do. And some of them said, I, it turned out the thing that I wanted to do wasn't actually available, so I had to become an entrepreneur. But, you know, I came out of nowhere and I was lucky, so don't tell people to follow my advice. And the large majority of them would say stuff like that. So they viewed themselves as having come out of nowhere. That's why it got the name The Dark Horse Project. But their common trait, and there were a few people who followed. There were some people who followed like a linear career path. I should say it was just a small minority. Most of them had this habit of mind where instead of saying, here's what I'm going to do in 10 or 20 years, they'd say, here's who I am right now. Here are my skills and interests. Here are the options in front of me. I'm going to try this one right now. And then a, maybe a year from now, I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And they just keep viewing their opportunities as these little chances to experiment about their own skills and interests and their options in the world. And they just keep going forward, bouncing from one to another until they triangulate a spot that sort of works for themselves. And that that resonated with me so much that I decided to sort of proactively start doing it. So I actually started something I call a book of small experiments, where at least every other month, I basically, like I did when I was a science grad student, I put down a hypothesis about something I think I'll enjoy or that I think will help my skills. And then I find some way to test that, whether that's taking a class, whether it's talking to somebody who who knows things that I don't or engaging in some kind of new project and keeping that book kind of forces me to keep doing those experiments. And I have to say, it's been like one of the most valuable things I've done, even for this book range, which I've written two books and I try to make those books projects that are kind of at the limit of my skill level at that time. And one of the things that really helped me with range was for one of my experiments, I got stuck with, I was having trouble organizing the information in range to, to make the whole thing coherent and not just seem like a bunch of magazine articles stapled together. So I, I decided 
you know, some fiction writers are incredible structural magicians. And so I said, all right, I'm going to take an online beginner's fiction writing class and see if that will help me with my structure problems. So that was kind of my hypothesis that it would help. So I go to this beginner's class, you know, nobody cares what anybody's done. Most of the people have never published anything. And so I'm out of my comfort zone. And in fact, I didn't really get what I expected from that class, (laughs) which was structural help. But in one of the exercises, we had to write a story with no dialogue whatsoever. And something about doing that exercise flipped a switch in my head where I said, you know what? In my last few years of magazine writing, I've been, I've been sort of leaning on quotes. And you want to do that in investigative writing like I was doing. You know, the lawyers especially want you to do that. Put things in, let people say things in their own words. But I had taken that over to working on range. And I was often using quotes when I didn't totally understand something. And so I was sort of papering over it. And if I don't understand it, the reader's certainly not going to understand it. And I was using quotes in lazy ways. And I went back and realized what I had to understand better and took out a huge number of quotes from the book and replaced them with, you know, my own narration that I thought was more clear and more simple than the quotes. And it was kind of scary in a way that it didn't occur to me what I was doing. I was in such autopilot until I took this class and it kind of knocked me out of my normal rut of competence and showed me something that I could do better. And so it's these experiments like that, that at least every other month I do something. It's not always as big as taking a class, but I'm totally committed to my to my book of small experiments because I think it's kind of like whether you're looking for a new career or not and trying to find your interests. Basically, if you go into the gym every day and lifting the same number of weights the same number of times every day, you might not get worse, but you won't get better. And I think that's the mode a lot of us get in uh, when we become competent. We do the same thing over and over and over. And that, that's not the way to get better. And so for me, the book of small experiments is both about finding new interests in the world, but also about making sure I'm not doing the same thing over and over and over because we know, you know, there's whether that's a motor skill or a cognitive skill, for the most part, we know that you need what's called variability, basically variable practice in order to get better at something, which means you need to be changing up what you're doing constantly. A great example. And Touching briefly on this notion of variable practice, you had a great discussion in the book around this notion of the Japanese concept of bensho or the idea of, of using connections questions and making connections questions. Tell me briefly about that, that topic or that idea. You know, this is interesting. You're asking me about things that I've done a lot of interviews and very few people have asked me about some of the things you're asking me about. So kudos to you, you know, for latching onto some things that that, that others aren't and, and reading carefully. Bansho is a Japanese word that essentially describes, uh, well, not essentially, it does describe a form of writing on the blackboard that charts like the intellectual journey of a class across numerous ideas. So if you walk into a Japanese math classroom, you'll see, you know, there's not like the overhead projector, you'll see a blackboard that is like the size of an entire classroom wall, essentially. And each of the kids has a magnet with their name on it. And the entire class period will often be one question that the class works on together where they start out and the teacher will ask for a volunteer to come up and come up with an idea for approaching the question. The kid will come up to the blackboard and put their name magnet next to what they start writing and they'll show an idea. And maybe it'll be right and maybe it'll be wrong. And then someone else will will be asked to come up with a different idea for approaching the problem. And so you'll have multiple streams of approaches to the problem going on at once and students coming up one after another saying, well, what could be a next step? Okay, what could be a different next step? And by the end of class, you've had multiple approaches, some right and some wrong, to this one problem that draws in a number of different concepts from math. So this is called, this is an attempt to impart what researchers who study learning call making connections knowledge, where 
through a single problem, you're forced to draw together concepts from uh, from different areas of math. And that stands in contrast to what's called using procedures knowledge, which is essentially just learning how to execute algorithms or, or tricks. A lot of people call them over and over and over. And this gets at what I think is one of the important kind of sub-themes of range, which is that sometimes the things you can do to cause the fastest rapid improvement, which is doing this using procedures practice, causes improvement really rapidly, can actually undermine your long-term development. So making connections knowledge comes slower, but it's much more flexible. And we can actually even impart it in some more simple ways than Bancho. So here's a study that just came out that didn't come out in time for the book, but but is on a concept that I use in the same chapter you're talking about. And this concept's called interleaving. And this is a form of studying that I'll explain. So in this in this study, seventh grade math classrooms were randomly assigned to different types of math learning. Some were assigned to what's called blocked practice, where you get problem type A, 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 problem type B, 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 C, 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 and so on. And you practice the procedure over and over and over. And the kids get really fast, at, really good at this really quickly. They make progress. They rate their own learning as being good. They rate their teacher as, you know, being really good. Other classrooms got assigned to interleaved practice, where instead of getting A, 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 B, 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 and all that, you get like A, D, E, C, F. Like you get problems as if all problem types were thrown in a hat and, and randomly drawn out. And in that situation, the kids at first are frustrated. Their progress is slow. They rate their teacher as worse. But instead of learning how to execute procedures, they're being forced how to to learn how to match a strategy to a type of problem and to connect concepts to the type of problem as opposed to just like executing a procedure. And come test time, both all the classes took the same test. The group that had interleave training destroyed the block practice group. The, the effect size was like on the order of taking a kid from the 50th percentile and moving them to the 80th percentile. And that's all because the learning was structured to make it more difficult and to force the learners into conceptual thinking instead of using procedures thinking. So that's just another way to accomplish what's going on in those Japanese classrooms. But again, gets at this theme of, you know, the thing that you can do to, to make learning feel the fastest and easiest may actually be bad for your, your long-term development. So I highly recommend if people are trying to learn anything, they should interleave it essentially. Like instead of trying the same thing over and over, mix it all up. You'll feel worse. You'll feel more frustrated. You'll do worse at first. And in the long run, you'll do much, much, much better. Such a great concept. And that's why I wanted to dig into it and, and explore it. So we've covered a lot of different themes and ideas today. It's been, it's been a really interesting conversation for listeners who want to start somewhere, who want to concretely implement something from our discussion. What is one piece of homework or action item that you would give them to begin implementing some of these themes and ideas? I mean, I would tell them to start a book of small experiments personally, and you don't have to do every other month like I do. Maybe start like once a quarter where you take time to assess something that you think you could get better at or, or something that you might be interested in, but you don't know and make, make your hypothesis of how you could get better or how you could explore this interest and then go test that. What's an experiment that I can do to go test that? And I'd say, try to stick to that and, and really do it. So that's, I've found that to be incredibly fruitful. The other thing I would say is, you know, and we didn't, we, this relates to something we talked about, but we didn't touch exactly on it, but it kind of relates to analogies. Whenever you're thinking about a project that you're going to take on, to some degree, whether explicitly or implicitly, you are going to make predictions about how that project is going to go. And one of the kind of 
errors that people make when they do this is they focus very tightly on the details of their own project and they try to make predictions. That's called the inside view. What you actually want to do is look at the basic structure of the project you're thinking about and then depart from it and go try to find a bunch of other structurally similar projects and see how those ones went. And that's what you should base your estimate on. That's called the outside view. And so it's using analogies to other similar projects and not focusing on the internal details and you'll be much, much more accurate. So I would highly recommend that kind of thinking. And, and that's, ex that's explained in, you know, in one of the chapters on using analogies for thinking in chapter five, as it relates to investors predicting return on investment, to prediction of revenues of movies and all these other things. So there's some good examples of how it can be applied to basically like whatever you, you want to apply it to. The whole concept of the outside view versus the inside view and base rates and all of that is probably could be an entire episode that we could dig sure. into. But unfortunately, I know we're running out of time. For listeners who want to find you, find the book, find your work online, what is the best place for them to do that? DavidEpstein.com is my website and at David Epstein on Twitter. And I just started a an infrequent newsletter that kind of has a bunch of stuff that I learned in the reporting of the book, but that couldn't fit in there, but that people might be interested in. There's a sign up on my webpage, if, if so. And of course, it's free and, and usually short and pretty infrequent. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed reading Range. It was a fantastic book, and I hope people will go check it out. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, -E to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. <laughs>